Trump is not only, you know, ostensibly against, you know, a lot of the more progressive or, or liberal folks uh, who've been criticizing, criticizing him in the Democratic Party, but he's also against many of the establishmentarians in the Republican Party. So he's he's got this two-front war that he's battling. I am just trying to accumulate the evidence right now to see what the patterns are, what does this mean, how does this really play out? That's Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. Today we hear from Gleaves about President Trump's first month in office. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. President Donald J. Trump's first month in office was an eventful one, perhaps that's putting it mildly. His immigration ban, which would prevent refugees from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the U.S., has been called a targeted attack on Muslims and has led to widespread protest. President Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, resigned following the discovery that he misled Trump and Vice President Pence about the contents of a phone call with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. President Trump has, as a partial result of all of this, gotten off on perhaps the wrong foot with the intelligence community. His relationship with them could be called volatile, as could his relationship with the media. It's no surprise, then, that the president's first month in office has been the subject of full-throated critiques from people on the left as well as in the center. But important to note as well are those Republicans, including Senators John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who have expressed some concern about the president's fitness for office. I asked Gleaves Whitney, this week's guest, about all of these points. I also asked Gleaves how he, as a scholar of the presidency, goes about evaluating a president only after a month in office. How, that is to ask, can one be objective in one's evaluation of a president? Is objectivity possible or even desirable? I ask Gleaves all these questions, and he talks about his process of evaluation and assessment, given his position as the director of a Center for Presidential Studies. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Well, Gleaves Whitney, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking with me again. Thank you, Joe. So, Gleaves, uh, I guess my first question is this. Since since he declared he'd run for the White House in June 2015, uh, I, I know you've gone on record with many comments about uh, uh, Donald Trump, but now you publicly uh, have called yourself sort of friendless on Facebook. We've had a conversation about this before. When it comes to Trump, uh, wh- why is that? Well, what I mean by that is that I am holding in abeyance any severe judgments about him, pro or con. It's really important in my position as director of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies to be a prudent judge of what happens. And some of the judgment, frankly, has to occur after a certain lapse of time. This is something historians know darn good and well. A lot of presidential historians use the half-century mark as a measuring stick for when you can really get an accurate assessment of a president. Here's why it takes about 50 years really to figure out how good or bad a president is. Take Harry Truman as an example. You know, if you polled presidential historians and scholars, if you polled the public about Harry Truman, uh, there was a very bad view of his presidency. He left office with 22% approval rating of the American people, and his reputation stayed pretty much in the the gutter for a long time. And finally, in the 1990s, when David McCullough wrote this magisterial biography of Truman, all of a sudden Truman's reputation skyrocketed from being in the basement to being in the uh, the stratosphere. It took a reevaluation that had to occur after the passage of time. Then we could put Truman in perspective because so much history had passed between 1953 and his president, uh, you know, the current president, uh, and then in the 90s it happened to be Bill Clinton, that we could see how his performance stacked up compared to what happened. We also could see that the international architecture of alliances that he and Vandenberg and others built, uh, Dean Acheson, all of these people built an international structure for peaceful coexistence, a very patient waiting to roll back the Soviet Union opportunistically where that could occur. All of this happened and, and came, of course, to a, uh, an acme of achievement in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And then two years later in 1991, 
when the uh, Soviet Union dissolved on Christmas Day. Now, that put Truman's accomplishment in perspective because he is the one who foresaw how we would do that. And even a uh, such a cold warrior as Reagan was basically following Truman's playbook and uh, how to manage uh, the Soviet Union. And then by the time George H.W. Bush comes along, our 41st president, who immediately followed Reagan, and the dissolution of the Soviet empire is actually taking place, Bush masterfully handles it, but it is based on that foundation that Truman established. So it took 50 years, it took a half century to figure out, you know, from the 1940s and early 1950s, well into the 90s to reassess Truman, to really assess what kind of president he was. So I think we have to be a little bit humble about these things. I'm not eager to jump on the bandwagon and say that Trump is, you know, after one month in his in his presidency, just, you know, an awful president. And I'm not willing to say yet that he's a successful and a great president. There's a lot of evidence that we're weighing on both sides. I want to get to that in just a minute. But the other thing I want to say as director of the Hallenstein Center for Presidential Studies, I've got to keep an open door. Half of our students in West Michigan voted for Trump. Half of them didn't. I need to keep an open door so that people who are also weighing the evidence, who have questions about this presidency, how do you put this president in historical context? Students have good questions. I need to keep an open door and an open mind so that I can learn from the students, so that I can hear their questions, and so that I can answer them effectively and not make them feel that they're going to be ostracized or ridiculed when they walk out this door because I don't happen to agree with them. So I just try to play it really fairly, be more of an umpire than one of the players themselves at this point. So what is the evidence that you're sort of weighing for and against? I mean, because a lot has happened, admittedly, a lot has happened in the first month of Trump's presidency. Well, that's a great question. And I do have to be open to the evidence. And there's evidence on both sides of the ledger. For example, um, if, if you look at something that E.J. Dion just wrote, mm -hmm. You know, he comes down pretty hard on what Trump is doing. Now, we've hosted, as you know, Joe, EJ, and he's always very thoughtful about his assessment of, of the presidency. Uh, he he was a, a big fan of Obama, but he could call it when Obama was uh, stumbling and not doing well. But he, he starts out his column of February 16th. Let's take a look at it. He says, let's not mumble or whisper about the central issue facing our country. Mm. What is this democratic nation to do when the man serving as president of the United States plainly has no business being president of the United States. And E.J. then goes into the Michael Flynn fiasco. Uh, he calls it a, the, the predictable outcome of a president who uh, is characterized by a lack of discipline, an administration that is characterized by deceit, uh, a human being in an office where he's exhibiting incompetence and moral indifference. That's what E.J. says about Donald Trump's approach to leadership. And, you know, E.J. praises those Republicans who are pondering how history is going to judge their actions at what E.J. calls a, a wrenching moment. He's looking at, for example, Senator John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham. And, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time before the GOP is going to have to confront Trump's unfitness. Well, this is a pretty bold thesis. Uh, he's not pulling any punches when he talks this way about uh, President Trump. He calls this a dark time that we're living in. He says, in this dark moment, uh, the one thing that we can celebrate, and this happens to be uh, my position on, on what he's about to say, whatever else you think about this period, we can celebrate the, the, the muscle of our American institutions, the institutions of a free society. They're, you know, they're pushing back against a president right now. They're offering our country a, a great combination of uh, of, of uh, self-awareness, of redefinition. American citizens are getting a civic education such as we've not gotten a long time. I mean, these are things to celebrate in an otherwise uh, difficult moment. So EJ mm -hmm. does try to find some positive things to say about what he calls our dark, dark time. But there are also many positive pieces coming out about Trump. And, and this is where we have to be, we who commentate, we have to be a little humble. President Trump was elected. He's a legitimate president, according to the electoral college rules by which we elect presidents. 
And he speaks for a lot of people who find in him a voice, a voice that finally is championing what they believe, what they feel. And so if you if you look at sort of the conventional wisdom coming out of Washington, uh, out of the, the commentary class, uh, it's, you know, there's just been moral chaos. And, you know, we have a president who's incompetent and a racist. He's a tyrant uh, who... Um, whose tyranny is seen in his executive order, you know, to to ban uh, travel from seven different um, Muslim-majority countries. Uh, some think that he's, um, as Andrew Sullivan put it in New York Magazine, Trump's just delusional. Um, but that's not the whole story. What about the 60-some-odd million people who voted for Trump? What are they doing? in this period to uh, highlight what they are feeling and, and celebrating what Trump is doing. And, you know, after his first month in office, they think that Trump has been quite successful. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. He's fulfilling campaign promises left and right. He's ordered a wall along the Mexican border. He's revoked federal funding for these sanctuary cities that offer uh, immigrants charged with crimes a refuge. Uh, he is. Um, he, he killed the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, which he felt was job-killing and which a lot of his voters uh, agreed with. Um, he uh, instructed the State Department and the Army Corps of Engineers to get back on uh, Keystone and Dakota Access pipelines uh, to reduce dependency on foreign oil. He's uh, frozen, essentially, the federal bureaucracy from growing its regulations. I mean... This is really a lot of achievements in the first month for his supporters, and they will point out Trump has won in Senate confirmation for all of his cabinet appointments who've had hearings, uh, despite savage opposition. I mean, go to a um, go to a, a column, for example, in USA Today that was published on February 17th, 2017, to read the list of all the things that Trump has done for that 60 million plus people who voted for him and from their point of view, to make America stronger and greater again, it, it's for all Americans. Uh, they would also point to this Supreme Court nominee, uh, Neil Gorsuch, as exactly the kind of Scalia-like jurist that he promised on the campaign trail. He, mm. he telegraphed who he was going to, the kind of jurist he was going to be appointing. It was one of the most transparent processes in American history. So. You know, um, even if Trump himself is down in the polls, and the polls certainly show that he is um, taking a beating right now as possibly the most unpopular president since World War II at this point in his presidency. However, the, um, the measures, you know, if you ask people, well, what about the actual actions he's taking? They tend to be popular with the voters, and he's, he's winning the— um, he, he's winning the polling contest there. Well, I have a, I just have a couple questions about that as well then, Gleaves. Um, so first, regarding the sort of first um, uh, first section of your response, uh, just to go back to uh, that article or that column that E.J. Dion wrote, I saw it as well. I think online it had a very, um, it had a very direct title. It said something like, admit it, Trump is unfit to serve. And what's striking is that it, it does make sense that someone like Dion, who is um, a liberal columnist, would ha take this position on Trump. But what, what is interesting is what you reference, which is that uh, Republican senators such as Lindsey Graham and John McCain have s seem at least to be taking some strong stances against Trump as well. And uh, after, after the Michael Flynn um, resignation, Lindsey Graham called for, I think, Correct me if I'm wrong on this, please, but a Senate Select Committee to sort of investigate uh, the Trump administration's relationship um, with with the Russians. Uh, my question then about that is this: It does seem like some politicians and writers on the center right, not just the Dion sort of liberal writers, but people on the center right as well, have taken strong stances against Trump both before his election and now even stronger stances after his election in, in light of the events of the first month of his, um, of his tenure. So do you, I guess, do you have sympathy with the views of people like uh, like Lindsey Graham, or are you sort of still taking a step back and kind of viewing the situation um, uh, 
with the eyes of a presidential studies center uh, director? Well, it goes back to the fact that uh, when I post articles and engage in commentary on, say, a forum like Facebook, I'm friendless. I don't get a lot of <laughs> approvals because I make it clear in those that I am I'm not either uh, on the camp to totally debunk uh, Trump and I'm not on the bandwagon to to praise him uh, excessively. I think that we, you know, when establishment politicians like Lindsey Graham are critical, I have to take note, even though a, a Lindsey Graham or a John McCain are in the same party as Trump, they do represent two very different things. Uh, Graham and McCain represent more the establishment wing of the party, right. whereas Trump represents the populace. And mm -hmm. so there's this inner tension. Trump is not only, you know, ostensibly against, you know, a lot of the more progressive or, or liberal folks uh, who've been criticizing, criticizing him in the Democratic Party, but he's also against many of the establishmentarians in the Republican Party. So he's he's got this two-front war that he's battling. I am just trying to accumulate the evidence right now to see what the patterns are, what does this mean, how does this really play out? And we have to wait, in a sense, until he's got his full team in place. So I am impressed that, that Republicans are standing up to him, but let's understand that Trump ran against the establishment, and that included virtually 16 fellow candidates that he beat, you know, he thrashed them all in the primaries and came out uh, president of the United States. So, you know, I have to respect that that's what more than 60 million Americans voted for. So I'm trying to weigh the evidence. What are they seeing in this man that will help them better integrate into the American dream? So, so I have a question about your objective assessment then as the director of a presidential studies center, um, as someone who's studied uh, uh, various presidencies, both successful and unsuccessful, or in the case of Truman, presidencies that were taken as unsuccessful for quite a long time and then have been sort of um, re-understood uh, and reimagined. So in the first month, it does seem to be the case that Trump has set up not just an adversarial relationship with the media, say, of, of course, it, that probably should be true for every president, but it's especially true for Trump. His relationship with the media is, um, is a, a difficult one, to be sure. But he's also uh, sort of lobbed some grenades at the, uh, some rhetorical grenades at the intelligence community. So I'm wondering your assessment of, uh, in, in this situation, uh, where Trump has a difficult relationship both with the media as well as with members of the intelligence community, what do you think are his prospects uh, in the coming year for being successful and developing better relationships with those communities? Or do you think he even needs to in order to uh, do the things that he's promised the people who voted for him that he would do? Oh, that's a good question. An old adage of politics is that uh, politics succeeds by addition. You increase your coalition size. You increase the number of members, different members, of different organizations. This is the way politics works in a democracy. That's common sense. Trump has gone out of his way to um, you know, have an adversarial relationship. When I watched this marathon press conference uh, that everybody's talking about, it was remarkable to me how free he was with his assessments of individual reporters and the media mm -hmm. in general, just saying, oh, you lie, your network lies. <laughs> this is just unprecedented in public forum like this. And of course, his followers are saying, you know, go, Donald, go. This is exactly what we wanted you to do. You know, take on the media. We'll see how that plays out. You know, Everybody should be a little bit chary. Don't we all always teach, you know, if somebody has an infinite supply of ink, uh, be chary of criticizing them. And of course, I'm speaking metaphorically. When it comes to the intelligence community, as they used to say in South Louisiana, where I lived, that boat don't float. You know, Trump is going to be dependent on the intelligence community. They know things. They know things about him. They know things about the people with whom he communicates. They know uh, about every relationship he's going to have to establish abroad, and he's going to be dependent on the intelligence community to work with him as partners to establish a, a working foreign policy and to have domestic tranquility. Uh, this is just the sine qua non of, of presidency and his intelligence. I mean, you don't 
remember uh, when the FBI was run by J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover always had something on everybody so that, uh, you know, if ever they were threatening the FBI or the intelligence community, he could fire back in his own surreptitious ways, very effective ways. Well, that's the lesson. And you do need that awareness of history to understand you don't mess with the intelligence community mm -hmm. like that. So I think that the intelligence community is a little demoralized and angry. They're demoralized because they do not feel respected by this president, and they're angry because things have been said, actions have been taken, which would ostensibly take them down a notch. They're not going to just, you know, take it lying down. So I think Trump needs a—he needs the help, and this has been my position all along. He really needs to surround himself with good people people who can help him grow as a leader. We need him to grow as a leader. Uh, now, there are certain Democratic operatives, of course, who hope he fails miserably. Let's just be frank about it. They want him to act like a buffoon all the time. But I think most prudent Americans realize we need our president to succeed to an extent, whether you like him or not politically. Um, and, and before you go to the polls and vote against him, you still need the president to succeed. He's responsible for foreign policy successes, uh, setting a tone in the world, making sure those international relationships are working and in good order so that when the crisis comes, we have friends whom we can call upon. And he's responsible for a lot of the tenor of our domestic relations. Remember, the, you know, the Constitution calls for a government that can promote uh, domestic tranquility and not chaos. So we need good people around Trump who will advise him of the importance of the intelligence community, how to deal well with the media so that his message can get out and he has enough successes to keep us safe. As a, the director of a presidential studies center, as someone who tries to be objective uh, to, to the degree that he can, who tries to be objective in his assessments of the presidency and of uh, presidential actions and of legacies. How do you determine success and how in this particular uh, situation do you think, you know, 20, 30 years from now, um, when you're looking back on Trump's presidency, how do you think you would determine the extent to which Trump was successful? And I guess I ask this because if we can imagine um, President Trump uh, succeeding or getting done a variety of the things that he promised to do. Uh, of course, many of his supporters would be ecstatic, would be very happy. But because he's so divisive, uh, many other Americans would think that his, you know, so-called successes would in fact be disasters for, you know, their understanding of what the country should do or should be. So how do you, as a sort of objective assessor of the presidency, uh, take into account the fact that to, to one person a Trump success would be to another person a kind of disaster? Well, again, a very good question, Joe. History provides many markers to determine the success of leadership, whether you're going all the way back to the ancient world and looking at, say, a Cicero-like character, or you're looking at Aristotle's evaluation of, of what a successful polity looks like. You go all the way through the Middle Ages, early modern times, you know, Locke and Hobbes, and Machiavelli, they all provide markers for what the successful prince or sovereign looks like. I come back to the uh, U.S. Constitution, the preamble of the Constitution, 50-some-odd words that really hit what the purpose of government is. And the mm -hmm. president, it's spelled out in Article 2 what the president's goals are, but the overarching goals of having a government at all come back to that preamble. And there's six purposes uh, for a government to, to, to work toward uh, having a sovereign government that, that functions well in an ethical and effective manner in those six purposes. And let's see how Trump does on all six of these. Is he doing all he can to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That's the reason for a government. This is, this is the modus operandi of the United States. So if you go down each of those, you will have a measuring stick, some ideal against which to, to judge any particular performance by any particular president. Now, 
you know, Trump has been very divisive, it is true. Uh, he's trying to define a more perfect union by building a wall and saying we have sovereign borders. Well, that's a legitimate argument, but maybe the way he's trying to implement it is not so wise. Mm. What about establishing justice? Well, certainly his uh, Supreme Court pick is a guy who's well qualified. I don't, even if you're against uh, Neil Gorsuch along uh, ideological grounds, I don't think you can say that he's anti-justice. Uh, what about ensuring domestic tranquility? Well, this is where the rollout, <laughs> you know, of, of that uh, travel ban really stirred up a wasp's nest. And, you know, I've, I've gotten in several arguments with some of my conservative friends saying, look, this, this president is not doing very well on the domestic tranquility front. He's stirring <laughs> up lots of angry passion and, and uh, you know, a lot of to the barricades in the street. And I don't know that that's good for us. What about provide for the common defense? Well, some people are saying all this business with Russia, you know, where's the rest of the information about that? Is there a backstory that we just don't know yet? Um, on the other hand, you know, so this is a sick et non process here. You know, he's going to increase military spending at the same time he renegotiates deals on the F-35 and other things. The, the military is feeling right now, I think, a, a bit of a morale boost. So you have to put that in the hopper and, and, and weigh it. And then, of course, the general welfare. How do you promote the general welfare? There are all kinds of ways. That doesn't mean welfare payments necessarily. Uh, probably not at all, you know, in terms of the way the phrase was originally written. But it does it does require a president to look at the actions that he undertakes, the programs that he fights for. Will they promote a the betterment of the American people writ large? Now, some people are going to come to a free market conclusion and say, well, you know, if we cut taxes and regulations and allow more entry into the um, marketplace, uh, an easier entry into the marketplace, that is going to lift all boats. Well, that's one way of looking at it. On the other hand, Trump has shown a real sensitivity, I think, uh, an unexpected sensitivity, as he expressed in his press conferences, one that's talked about so much, toward the uh, urban areas, our inner cities. And he, uh, he seems to want to do something for uh, people who've historically been marginalized in our country in the inner cities to help improve their lot. Uh, I know that uh, he made a, a big uh, point of trying to meet with the, the uh, Black Caucus in Congress. We'll see where that goes. There's a lot of skepticism out there about that, but that would be an example of promoting the general welfare. And then that last, the sixth criterion uh, of a government, um, you know, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our prosperity, posterity, excuse me. Well, it just remains to be seen whether this occurs or not. We're in a very tumultuous time, and a lot is going to have to sort out before we see how this president performs and can really start to grade him fairly. I'm willing to give him a little bit more time, and that's why I remain friendless on Facebook, mm. where uh, neither my liberal friends nor my conservative friends uh, appreciate that I'm not jumping on one side or the other, but I'm just going to prudently wait. The historian in me, the trained historian in me, uh, it counsels that we must wait a little bit longer. Well, Gleaves, let's. Can we talk a bit about that then? Um, I, I I hate to be to seem callous in asking this question, but let's talk a bit about how you have no friends right now on Facebook. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um, love it. It shows that I'm an independent thinker. I, I don't run with the herd. <laughs> I suppose. It's uh, just fine. I'm tough enough. So I guess, well, I mean, related to that, I guess I'm wondering, you know, to the degree that you can or, you're, or you feel comfortable with exploring this, I'm wondering if you could describe some of the conversations you've had with um, your sort of conservative friends or the people um, who you've sort of, the relationships you've established on say the center right um the the relationships you've established with people whose opinions you trust um you can say as general as you like of course with this question but i'm just wondering this sort of what what are people saying what are people on the center right saying right now what are the concerns of longtime uh republicans about uh about president trump what, what are they thinking and feeling about his first month in office 
Well, I think most conservatives believe that a free society requires people of character, citizens of character. It's the old virtue versus liberty debate, and most of the conservatives with whom I speak uh, are concerned about the character issues in our society. And um, I think most of, most of the folks are very, very wary of Trump. I think that they are upset by the fact that he just plainly, baldly does not tell the truth. Mm. He, will, he will say things that he cannot back up, uh, whether it's how big a crowd is or by how much he won the election or saying he's had the biggest electoral victory since Reagan. I mean, these are just patently false assertions. And rather than back off these false assertions, he gets defensive. It's a, it's a bad trait. We would give him a D minus or an F if he were our student. And we pointed out that there is evidence that contradicts. You know, we're not talking about belief or opinion here. We're talking about evidence scientific evidence that disputes what he is saying. And I think most of my conservative friends who, who think that there is an objective truth, that it is worthwhile pursuing, even if it's asymptotically, we never totally capture it, but they're not post postmodernists who reject the notion of truth. I think they are very disturbed by this president. On the other hand, there are people who are let me make a distinction, Joe. There are the conservatives, those are the people I was just talking about, and then conservatives, people who are temperamentally conservative who hmm. not, are not necessarily part of the movement, and so we don't use the definite or indefinite article with them, uh, but these populist conservatives, we might call them. They're people who generally are they're patriotic, they love their country, they've seen a lot of suffering on places, you know, you been in Michigan. You've seen the I-75 corridor sure. uh, on the other side of the state, the immiseration, to use that Marxist term, the immiseration of our communities where literally our downtowns and our neighborhoods in some of these cities have been gutted by free trade and uh, robotics and artificial intelligence and the economy that continues to evolve and leave literally hundreds of thousands of workers behind. You know, you drive through it in West Virginia and Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. It's painful to see. You read about the glory days of these communities exactly one century ago and how they have just rotted from the inside out. And the people are saying, who's with me? These, these people tend, these are the, uh, what Reagan exploited as the Macomb County Democrats. He got them out of the Democratic Party and got them to vote for him in 1980 and 84. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these are the same Macomb County Democrats that when the Republican program didn't work for them, perhaps because of free trade, perhaps because of not adapting to the change in a way that was sensitive to their needs, voted for Obama in 2008, returned to the Democratic Party, voted for Obama in 2012. Joe, they're suffering, they're hurting. They need a champion. And then Trump was able to come along and say, see, both parties failed you. And so these populists who tend to be socially a little bit more conservative, um, I think that they they want to give Trump a chance. And they're they're center right now. They are they're tired of, you know, however they see the, the issues that might differ from how I personally received uh, perceive the issues. You know, whether they were anti-immigrant or anti-trade uh, agreement or whatever it is, they they desperately want a champion, and I don't write those people off. I respect them. Um, I think that education is important to keep the conversation both civil and informed. But uh, those are the two sections of the center-right that I talk to. And um, we're in a time of such transition because right now the populist conservatives are ascendant over the movement right. conservatives, as you know. So I, I, I just have a quick question about uh, the position of the movement conservatives then as sort of you've described it and you, um, you know, I've, I've met um, and I've have talked with a number of them on the podcast as well. I, I guess this is something that I'm wondering or, and have been wondering. And I think, I think plenty of people have been, have been sort of turning it over in their head. And I'm wondering if you could just set, shed some light on it, uh, though I think it probably 
might be a tricky question in many ways. Um, with, with respect to President Trump, uh, you do hear a lot about you know, concerns with his character, that he just seems, in, in some cases, seems to be a, sort of unhinged, um, or just to sort of say things and to, as you kind of gestured toward, um, not to tell the truth a lot. Would, would many conservatives or center-right Republicans, in your view, would they be okay with, with President Trump if he just changed the way he presented himself? That's to ask, are they fine with all of his policies, um, but just not fine with the way he carries himself? That is a perceptive question, because I think a lot of these conservatives are very pleased with the cabinet appointees. These are cabinet members who are more, I would say, as a team, a team of rivals, are more conservative than, say, Reagan's cabinet. And for that reason, I think a lot of conservatives are looking at, at Trump with, with you know, a, a great deal of hope both movement conservatives and, of course, the populist conservatives are doing so. The fact that the Supreme Court nominee is truly somebody who pleases movement conservatives as well. Uh, I think that it would be accurate to say that many of them have more faith maybe in the appointees and their temperament and their ability to, uh, to guide the president toward good decisions than they are and Trump himself, who had not served in government, did not serve in the military, has very little experience with now this Leviathan in Washington that he's going up against. And, um, you know, it, again, it'll take time to see how all of this shapes out. But I think the I, I, I think that uh, most conservatives are hopeful because of the cabinet picks and the judicial mm. picks. So, Gleaves, I'm wondering if I could just ask a bit about you. Um, we've talked on the podcast a bit about your experience in academia. So you were a student of Stephen Tonser at the University of Michigan, and that's sort of, in many ways, I think, where you developed a lot of your ideas, not just about politics, but about culture and about the development of culture. That's, that's where you, I think, um, seem to become uh, a, a reader of people like Stephen Tonser or also Russell Kirk or perhaps Edmund Burke. How did you develop as a political thinker? Uh, how did how did your understanding of culture uh, sort of transition to your uh, politics, if that's a fair question? Well, it's a it's a question that forces me to reveal more than I usually reveal fair about enough. my personal life. Yeah. But uh, I will say that I think two or three formative things, besides Stephen Tonser's uh, mentorship at the University of Michigan. Uh, one was that I came from a broken family. Uh, and, you know, as Hemingway talks about how unhappy childhoods uh, shape people in certain ways, yeah. uh, we, we were an unhappy family. There was a lot of conflict. And I think that that always then made me yearn for uh, what is the secret of a successful family? I, I mean, I would have loved to have been in a family like, say, the Obamas. You know, look at what a beautiful family President Obama and Michelle Obama have created. Uh, so I don't know that that's political necessarily. Mm. I mean, I don't put a Republican or a Democratic, conservative or liberal thing on it. However, there are there are studies, there are indications that if you do pay a lot of attention to family policy and your social policy in general, that m more stable families make for happier individuals and better social policy. So I'm in agreement with that broad philosophical principle. Uh, so I think there I am probably uh, from the get-go, from the time of an early age before I could even articulate it, to the right of center on family issues. But then when I got older and began reading, um, I was uh, to the left of center in college and probably my uh, junior and senior year of high school. Um, but I tell you what changed me was when I went on a Fulbright to West Germany and got to spend some time in West Berlin and then go over, uh, go through Checkpoint Charlie and the Berlin Wall into East Germany and spend some time in East Berlin, East Germany. And when I saw the obscenity of that wall and what the communists were doing when they had built their own enlarged gulag, keeping people in and shooting anybody that tried to walk out illegally, 
and you can walk along the, the river Spray in Berlin, and you could see all the places. It was marked, little white crosses, all the places where people who tried to flee East Berlin, East Germany, were shot down like dogs. And you go to Checkpoint Charlie, and you see the memorial, and you read the stories of the people and the way they died. Some of them died agonizing deaths for hours, lying in that bed of sand in no man's land where their blood disappeared into the sand and their lives disappeared. And at Checkpoint Charlie, the memory of these people was kept alive. And I thought, why have I been so morally neutral about communism? This is obscene. Hmm. This is a horrible system. And I think after that experience, I came back to the United States and I started reading National Review avidly. I started watching Firing Line. William F. Buckley became a very influential thinker to me. I said, what is it? Why did he have clarity about this when so many of the people with whom I was studying did not have clarity about this moral issue in the same way that we chastise people for not having clarity about the plight of blacks in the civil rights movement? I mean, I came from the South. I understand what it feels like and what it sounds like when people say, oh, the blacks are just getting uppity. They have it just fine. We shouldn't give them voting rights. We shouldn't give them civil rights. Well, that's wrong. There needs to be moral clarity at that point. And I thought, well, okay, so we all have moral clarity about how there have been so many injustices to African-Americans in this country. They have to be rectified. Martin Luther King is on the right side of history. Why can't we admit that the the anti-communists in our country have a point? It's not, for me, then it became a decision. I am not going to be cool with being what was then called in the 1980s an anti-anti-communist. And I thought that the arguments that, well, you just haven't seen it tried, you know, uh, in the right way, Russia, you know, Stalin, Mao, Lenin, Castro, Che, uh, Pol Pot, Uncle Ho, they just didn't execute properly what socialism really is. Well, this is balderdash. If you, yeah, there were plenty of experiments in all of those countries. If you read about, say, closer to our shores, uh, the poor Cuban people's uh, exploitation by their own government, the fact that, that they have to import food uh, for the people in Cuba when it's just a beautiful island which is capable of raising so much, but the, the government has squashed those people so much. I, I became right of center on those issues. So you see that how culturally and socially I became right of center. Mm -hmm. Uh, politically in the international arena, I became right of center. I have certainly always been willing to question it, however. I am open to debate. I've never been dogmatic about it. I, I think because of perhaps my birth order or whatever it was in my own upbringing, I always felt the need to be a peacemaker between opposing sides in the family. Uh, this is later when I uh, began thinking about establishing our Howenstein Center's Common Ground Initiative, which, Joe, you worked on so beautifully for two years uh, right here in the office. I think that I, I looked as a historian at the rich tradition in Western civilization of uh, the humanities in general. You and I had many conversations about uh, the, the different ways that, that Western civilization has promoted a, a search for common ground. But that's what it is. It's a search. It's not something that finally is achieved. But I started looking at, at the incredibly heroic attempts, whether you look at the, the Second Continental Congress, which comes out with that Declaration of Independence, that is a common ground document. It satisfies the needs of the Enlightenment philosophers in America from the Scottish Enlightenment who needed to have universal principles of what freedom meant and what sovereignty meant. And it satisfied the traditionalists at the Second Continental Congress who were looking at Magna Carta, common law, the origins of parliament and saying, we also need a traditionalist statement to balance the enlightenment statement. That was a common ground document. And then you go up to 1787, the Constitutional Convention. Many, many compromises to get to the remarkable constitution that we have thrived under to this day. And then you look, we just had H.W. Uh, Brands here at the Hauenstein Center. His new book is that he's uh, finishing up right now is on the great triumvirate of the 19th century. If you look at Webster, 
Calhoun and especially Clay, the great compromiser, their compromises were putting off civil war. They knew that a civil war would be terrible. We lost more human beings in our civil war than any other war. 626,000 people died in our civil war. This was a, a terrible tra tragedy, the American Iliad, we call it. And it was because of the disposition of these great compromisers to get the abolitionists to the extent that they could work with people who were slave owners to get them together and say, look, we're just delaying. We're just delaying. Inevitably, slavery will disappear, but go with our, our compromises now to avoid the bloodshed. Had they been able, Joe, to have one more compromise, say forged in 1860 that could have lasted, oh, say 15 years, we might have averted the greatest war we ever faced. And think of how that would have changed American history. What an incredible what if. So, Gleaves, I will have a couple questions about what you just said. I know I, I, I can't keep you for much longer. Um, I guess I'll go with the, the biographical then, just a couple more questions about that. Um, you know, you mentioned our conversations at the Howland Sun Center in the office. One thing that I was always fascinated by um, was, was just sort of hearing about your transition from um, the academy into uh, political life. Uh, that's, that's um, you know, you've, you've worked as a, as a speechwriter, um, as well as an historian, um, just sort of outside the academy. I'm wondering if you could talk about that transition you made sort of after the University of Michigan and how it shaped your thinking about um, American politics and the presidency, because you can bring certain academic habits of mind to your study of the presidency, but you also have this sort of on-the-ground experience. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the relationship between those two things. Sure. Well, I had 11 and a half years of experience with a governor who insisted that the search for common ground was a worthwhile pursuit. He took a very, a very prudent attitude toward these things. So if all the Republicans just to get together when they have the power and jam a law down Democrats' throat, well, I guarantee you, as we say in Texas, when the Democrats next get the power, they will do the same thing and undo what the Republicans had done, and vice versa. Vice versa, we're seeing this with uh, President Trump's response to Obama, especially the Affordable Care Act, where the, the urge to just get back and dismantle, deconstruct everything that a Democratic president has done uh, is is a little part vindictive and, and very much driven by we're in power now and we're going to get back. With John Engler, Governor Engler, there was always the urge successfully pursued to reach across the aisle and to find leading Democrats, uh, the brokers of the Democratic Party who could forge a deal with Governor Engler. His approach was, what can we do that will last this is what the voters sent us here to do, is to solve, to, to confront the problems our state faces and find those issues around which we can agree and, and pass lasting legislation. This did not mean that he was not a strong conservative with a lot of principle. He was a, a staunch uh, conservative in his own right, and he would get sometimes to the point where he would not compromise principle. But wherever there was a way to compromise, he welcomed conversation with the Democrats. And the other thing he did was he built relationships with them. And so it wasn't personal. Uh, if, uh, you know, people disagreed with him, he did not, oh, he could come back with strong arguments, don't get me wrong, but he didn't demonize them. He didn't dehumanize them. And um, watching that for 11 and a half years was a great tutorial in this whole Common Ground Initiative that we've launched at the Hauenstein Center. It's, it's baked into the DNA of American politics, of people who want to serve in a political tradition. Again, going back to the Second Continental Congress where our declaration was declared, and going back to the uh, Constitutional Convention of 1787 where our Constitution was forged. It's baked into the Americans' DNA to try to reach across to people who disagree with you and find that common ground for lasting solutions. Uh, last I checked, we're still a country and we still have the same constitution. 
And uh, I think some of Governor Ingler's achievements with both Republicans and Democrats serving in the legislature have endured very well to this day. And I'm proud to have served on that team. So it gave me, as you say, it did give me an on-the-ground experience of politics uh, where you do not demonize, you are respectful, you listen to the other side, uh, you recognize their legitimacy. After all, if a Democrat is coming into your office and they've received 45% of the state's vote, their party in the last election, you acknowledge that. I want to hear what your constituency is saying. I need to know. Now let's sit down and reason together. Let's forge a solution so that you can take something back to your constituency as well. Um, you know, he, he was a very good negotiator. Well, Gleaves, I think you just gave us a really good lens through which to look at the coming months of our current uh, presidency. Uh, so uh, thanks, thanks again very much for coming on and talking with me. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Joe. It, it is a pleasure, and uh, thank you for all these wonderful Common Ground podcasts. I think they're adding immeasurably to the conversation and doing a lot of good out there in the marketplace of ideas. Oh, thanks, Gleaves. That was Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the center, producer of this podcast, and this week's guest is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And as we discussed in this episode, it's been quite a year, it's been quite a month for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org, follow Howenstein GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.